So the last thing that I made with my butcher box shipment was aloo chicken, and it turned out really well. One of my favorite things is to get the shipment and then open up the New York Times cooking app and see what I want to create over the next few weeks. It helps my creative cooking chops, and both my wife and I really enjoy it. ButcherBox offers a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing price, plus they have exclusive member deals, and they also have their own recipes, although I am preferential to the New York Times app, but that's just me. And you can sign up today at ButcherBox.com conspirituality and get their special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. So for that year, you can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com conspirituality and use code conspirituality to choose your free for a year offer, plus get $20 off your first order. If you're a fan of workplace comedies like The Office or satire like The Onion, then I have a podcast that I know you'll love. It's called Mega. Mega is an improvised satire from the staff of a fictional mega church. That's the premise. Each week, the hosts, Holly Laurent and Greg Hess, are joined by guests, since people like Cecily Strong or Jen Hatmaker, to portray characters inside the colorful world of Twin Hills Community Church, which they describe as a mega church with a tiny family feel. The result is a sharp-witted and hilarious look into the world of commercialized religion using humor to cope with the frightening amount of power that church and religion have. So I very much recommend you checking out Mega's episodes, like the one with Saturday Night Live's Cecily Strong, playing Cece String, a hilarious character who's fresh out of jail, uh, and also comedian Jason Mansukas. You may find yourself dying of laughter and perhaps inspired to take an improv class yourself. Mega is able to keep you laughing as you think and reflect about the world we live in. You can find Mega on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Do you want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? Come on. Of course you do. The average podcast listener has six shows in rotation, so you're most likely not just listening to Conspirituality. And that's totally okay. I'd love to share a podcast to add to your list. The Jordan Harbinger Show is a top-shelf podcast named Best of Apple in 2018, so don't just ignore my suggestion to listen to this one like you probably do with your other friends who tell you to listen to podcasts. Jordan dives into the minds of fascinating people, from athletes to scientists, political activists, mobsters, even hostage negotiators. And Harbinger has an undeniable talent for getting his guests to share never-before-heard stories and thought-provoking insights. Without fail, he pulls out tactical bits of wisdom in each episode, all with the noble cause to make you more informed, a critical thinker, and to better operate 
in today's world. I was on his show. In preparation, I listened to a bunch of episodes. He's just really good at what he does. Like episode 880 features Ian Bremmer, you know, the top-notch political scientist. And the topic is dealing with the world in disarray. But then you have episodes like his skeptical Sunday format. Episode 882 looked at homeopathy. But he has other episodes on Ayurveda and also the popular pseudoscience of analyzing body language. There isn't a better podcast to listen to casually or seriously to expand your worldview. He's also got a strangely relatable weekly segment called Feedback Friday, where Jordan covers advice on everything from escaping a cult or a psycho family situation to relationships and networking and even to asking for a raise. So point blank, Jordan Harbinger is smart, funny, he's easy to listen to. You'll be pressed to find an episode without excellent conversation, a few laughs, and even actionable advice that you can directly use to improve your life. You can't go wrong with adding The Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, everyone. Matthew here with episode 119. We are Slender Man, featuring an interview with author Kathleen Hale. Derek, Julian, and I tweet individually under our own names. You can follow us on IG and Facebook. We'll also be in the metaverse soon after getting our lower bodies removed. That's a joke. And you can support us on Patreon, where $5 a month gets you full access to hundreds of hours of bonus material and early access to projects like the Swan Song series, where we look at the historical and cultural roots of Teal Swan. Over the next several months, we'll be rolling out other special series as well in that early access category. Kathleen Hale has a riveting new book out. It's called Slender Man, Online Obsession, Mental Illness, and the Violent Crime of Two Midwestern Girls. Previously, Hale published two young adult novels in the murder mystery genre, one is called No One Else Can Have You, and the follow-up was Nothing Bad Is Going to Happen. She also published a collection of essays called Kathleen Hale is a Crazy Stalker, which contains an infamous personal essay first published in The Guardian in 2014, which attracted a wave of online shaming that pushed Hale offline, but also into the arms of the Slenderman mystery. We spoke about those origins off the top when I sat down with her for a wide-ranging interview, but before we roll that for you, I'm going to open with a review of this book and some stage setting for what Hale has accomplished in it. But first, a small sketch of how this story fits into our beat here at Conspirituality Podcast. Internally here for a while, we've been using the term online religion to describe the ecstasies, rituals, and abuses of conspirituality. 
The religion part of the definition is easy enough to understand. The people we study adopt faith claims. They have a view of salvation that depends on an anxious alchemy of worldly danger and divine grace. But it's the online part of the definition that really boots the system up to its full chaotic potential. Virtual spaces intensify the affects, aesthetics, and real-world impacts of both terror and devotion because they are limitless, frictionless. Gamification encourages a kind of stochastic citizenship in which everyone seeks to be the center of an explosive story of salvation. However, in an online religion, your co-faithful can feel both extremely close by virtue of your shared mission, but also very far away in terms of who will have your back in the real world. Your skill for connecting the dots can be co-opted and rewarded, but your social and emotional vulnerabilities can be weaponized against you. And as we've seen with QAnon, figments of the imagination become ghosts in the machine that drive people so mad at home that their rage spills out into the street. We started this project in 2020, when so much of this momentum was cruising towards a peak that we're still waiting for. But years before we caught this wave, or really being older Gen Xers, before we even knew that it was there, online fervors were already curdling in the ancient social media spaces of 2chan, 4chan, Wizard-chan, Tumblr, and one of the oldest message boards of all, Something Awful, where a key part of the story that Kathleen Hale writes about begins. As she explains in the book and in our interview, Slenderman first appeared in 2009 on Something Awful as part of an online art contest. And I'm just going to put a pin in here to remind you that this is the message board at the center of Dale Baran's study of how the memosphere that came to drive Chan culture and then QAnon evolved. We talked to Baran about all of this in episode 62. And just to throw in another link, QAnon reporter Mike Rothschild, our guest in episode 57, noted that some people have dubbed QAnon as Slenderman for Boomers. But back to 2009. For this contest, a something awful user named Eric Knudsen created photorealistic scenes of children in playgrounds with a tall, faceless, spectral figure in the background. Creepypasta.com, which is a horror fiction sharing board founded in 2008, is where Slenderman became a recurring character. And it hosts the following description, which was later quoted by the psychiatrist appointed by the court to inform the case at the center of Hale's book. The Slender Man is a being, male in appearance, who looks like a man with extremely long, slender arms and legs. He also appears to have four to eight long black tentacles that protrude from his back, though different photographs and enthusiasts disagree on this fact, and therefore it is theorized that he can contract these tentacles at will. 
He is described as wearing a black suit, strikingly similar to the visage of the notorious Men in Black, and as the name suggests, appears very thin and able to stretch his limbs and torso to inhuman lengths in order to induce fear and ensnare his prey. Once his arms are outstretched, his victims are put into something of a hypnotized state where they are utterly helpless to stop themselves from walking into them. It is often thought, as well, that he enjoys stalking people who become overly paranoid about his existence, purposely giving them glimpses of himself in order to further frighten them. Now, one very important visual aspect left out by this description is that in place of facial features, we see a smooth, rounded, pale surface, almost like the blank face of a wooden or plastic model that an artist would use for learning how to draw figures. Now, in a book called Folklore, Horror Stories, and the Slender Man, the development of an internet mythology, authors Shira Chess and Eric Newsom sum up the uncanny impact of this image in a really nice way. They write, Though the Slender Man stories do not normally contain what might be thought of as gore or body horror, through this facelessness we approach some measure of abject horror, a condition often linked with the uncanny. The facelessness of the Slender Man makes those that experience it acutely aware of their own eyes, mouth, and other features. Julia Kristeva defines the abject as those elements that we encounter that cause a breakdown in understanding the boundaries of our inner selves and our outer corporeal mortal bodies. Seeing a corpse reminds us of our own mortality. Seeing the spilled bodily fluids of others reminds us of the tenuousness of our own bodily intactness. The abject arouses repulsion, as in these moments too much attention is drawn to our flesh and bones physicality, and concepts of inner self are fractured and disordered. Yet, Kristeva writes, we are drawn to it. Quote, one thus understands why so many victims of the abject are its fascinated victims, if not its submissive and willing ones, unquote. We seek out stories like those of the Slender Man because the horrors contained within them make us aware of our own anxieties, the conflicts of our own inner selves, our own mortality. Now, Chess and Newsom also point out that Slender Man has a long imaginal history with a lot of familiars. Knudsen, the artist, said he was inspired by the Tall Man from the 1979 film Phantasm. Slenderman also harkens back to the gentleman who appeared in Buffy the Vampire Slayer and to the Men in Black. I look at him and see the Invisible Man of H.G. Wells, and Kathleen Hale traces him back to the Pied Piper, given his impact on children. And on that note, Slenderman, in his own wiki, has a dedicated tab called Relationship to Children, which explains this eerie ambivalence. Because on one hand, he seems to seek friendship and may only be able to find it in children who, unlike adults, he can get to trust him. But on the other hand, he may choose children because he can take longer to nurture their fear, stalking them for years before attacking them as adults. He's said to brainwash children, to recruit them as proxies for his nefarious deeds, but the caveat is that 
no one really knows why or what for. Now, when Chess and Newsom describe Slenderman as being seductive to the conflicts of our own inner selves, they pave the way to understanding the mental health landscape of the Slenderman stabbing, which occurred in May of 2014 in a forest close to Waukesha, Wisconsin. The main perpetrator and the focus of Hale's book is Morgan Geyser, whose own inner selves had been amplified from early childhood by the clinical schizophrenia she likely inherited from her father. Using extensive interviews and transcripts from court testimony and police interrogations, Hale reports that up until the age of 12, Geyser's inner selves were mostly benign. They formed a kind of hallucinated Greek chorus that would keep her company. They would comfort and encourage her, sometimes even protect her. For instance, Maggie was a girl who was smart and savvy and did her best to keep Morgan out of trouble. Hale also reports on a boy named Sev, quote, who resembled an anime character with dark bangs swooping across huge opalescent gray eyes. When Morgan pressed her hand against Sev's chest, she felt his heartbeat. Sometimes he slept in her bed and Morgan woke up with his drool in her hair. Morgan's mental landscape made her a loner, except for one classmate. Bella Leutner, who kindly accepted Morgan's altars as part of their friendship circle. But this was also happening at the cusp of teenagehood, with more intense social and academic pressures, and with Morgan's growing awareness that she was not like other girls. And while Bella was empathetic, she was also fairly straight-laced in personality terms. She was neurotypical, And it wasn't until Morgan met Anissa Ware that she felt she had a friend who mirrored and encouraged her own strangeness, a friend who didn't merely tolerate her. Anissa, who'd come through a period of family separation and stress, introduced Morgan to the escapism of an online site called Creepypasta, a fan fiction site. And there they read and shared their favorite twisted stories, becoming increasingly interested in Slenderman together in a way that's best summed up in a caption that Anissa found under one of the more famous Slenderman images. Quote, Slenderman's persistent silence and outstretched arms horrified and comforted us at the same time. Unquote. Now, For those of you who have heard us speak about disorganized attachment in relation to undue influence and cultic dynamics, that's about as succinct a description as you'll get. So, is Slenderman a cult leader? Did Anissa recruit Morgan? It's nothing so crude as that. He was a picture on the internet around which they could spin stories that they could bond over. But those stories, and the internet more broadly, put Morgan and Anissa into a zone in which safety and terror were hopelessly confused, and they are by no means alone in that. And here's the part of the story where the sense of things starts to break down in ways that can only be understood by squinting hard 
at a confluence of online, fantastical, hallucinatory, and paranoid worlds. The girls, Anissa seemingly driven by morbid enthusiasm, and Morgan driven by a need to make sense of her increasingly chaotic inner world, came to believe that Slenderman was both a danger and a source of protection for them. They began to think of him as constantly surveilling them, assessing them. So they begin to co-create a story together about earning his favor and protection through sacrifice. Somehow they decide, through perhaps the unspoken triangulated jealousies of tween friendship, that that sacrifice should be offered by killing Bella Leutner. They then, this is hard to believe, plan it all out, down to the last detail over months. But that plan, which included a 300-mile escape hike through the wilderness to Slenderman's imagined mansion in a national forest, equipped only with maxi pads, matches, and granola bars, didn't unfold as they expected. So I'll let you read how Hale deftly and empathetically walks through that sequence of events. In our interview, she describes foraging for the little details that would humanize this story, and it shows. Walking beside her as the reader, I felt like she was carrying a magnifying glass, but also something like a a post hoc rescue kit. I envisioned it containing more snacks, pajamas, lip balm, graphic novels, and chewing gum, maybe stuffed animals. Things that would comfort these children who were walking off the edge of the world, where Morgan would wield a knife, egged on by Anissa, where Bella would land in the ICU, and Morgan and Anissa would land in jail, prosecuted absurdly and cruelly as adults. Hale's book is brimming with care and tenderness for all of these girls who are creative, confused, scared, and ultimately bound to each other through social contagion and mental illness. And it's hard to emphasize how lucid the writing is on this. Hale is acceptable but elliptical. She uncovers jagged details but never easy answers. It's written in an episodic style that both drives forward but also gives space to breathe. And I actually wondered several times in the middle of reading it whether it was too good, whether Hale couldn't resist fulfilling the rhythmic demands of the young adult fiction she knows so well. So in the interview, I asked about this, and she spoke at length about making the shift to a reality of transcripts and court documents. And the book also silently carries the weight of the backstory of a writer who stays in the shadows, but also researches through her own shadows. Because, as I hinted at at the top, Hale came to the Slender Man stabbing with more than really sharp writing chops and a hometown knowledge of Wisconsin where she grew up. As I mentioned, she came with her own history of online chaos and shame, And so, as we discuss in the opening of our interview, Hale heard about the tragedy just months before confessing in a personal essay in The Guardian 
that she had stalked an anonymous reviewer on Goodreads who had panned her first novel. And the way she tracks her own spiral and vague plan for retribution in that essay kind of predicts the close attention she would later pay to the events leading up to the assault on Bella Leutner. Of course, Hale's story did not end in blood or tragedy. She pulled herself back from an in-person confrontation and settled for an awkward phone call. But her article, which was meant to be an exploration of online obsession, outraged the tightly knit Goodreads ecosystem and led to an online backlash. And in the wake of it all, Hale was hospitalized in a state psychiatric facility. She had to leave online life to search for relief and also anonymity. And with The Slender Man Stabbing, she plunged into a story that wouldn't be about her, at least not directly. And I think if there's lemonade in Hale's cancellation, maybe it came from the fact that she was largely offline throughout the Trump years. Chatting after our interview, she said that leaving social media had been so good for her mental health, but also for her work. It also meant that she largely missed the QAnon phase of internet chaos, which I imagine helped her keep her eyes on a more human and manageable story. And Hale layers that story like an onion. In one layer, the stabbing was driven by an online obsession. But deeper than that, it was driven by mental precarity, amplified between Morgan and Anissa in what Anissa's defense team would suggest was a kind of folie à deux. But the crime at the center of this book, emerging from an online and psychiatric netherworld, is also an entry point into Hale's broader cultural commentary. In it, she shows an America that scapegoats its children and abandons every value except retribution. While Bella struggles to recover from 19 stab wounds, Morgan and Anissa are dragged into a brick-and-mortar version of the Slenderman Mansion, where the state of Wisconsin, governed by super-predator laws dating back to the 1990s, is going to prosecute them as adults. They are interrogated without lawyers or family support, by cops who have no experience with mental health issues and little with children. They're deprived of acutely needed medication for dangerously long periods of time. They are denied schooling. In jail, Morgan decompensates. And in court, she is presented with an ableist double bind. On one hand, prosecutors tell her that her psychiatric condition is no excuse for that day's crime. But on the other hand, they tell her it is real enough that it should condemn her to prison for life. The elected judge, who seems to continually forget that prosecuting the girls as adults ignores their basic needs, is there to restore a kind of order, which is not really order at all. So what Hale manages to document is not the culpability of two 12-year-olds who lost their minds one morning in violence but social and legal frameworks that will do anything to simplify tragedies down to the level of dime store novels, 
to scapegoat the weirdos, to blame screen time or the internet, when the internet only really reflects the carceral and surveillance state. It's a culture that believes that relief comes only through punishment. And this is not an easy mirror to look into. When Hale first pitched the seed of this story to The Guardian, they turned it down, worried that readers would not take kindly to a book that empathized with attempted murderers, even if they were children with brains barely formed. And some of that same response is visible today on Goodreads, with some reviewers already saying that focusing on Morgan's mental health and the legal system somehow denigrates the suffering of Bella Leutner and her family. But I don't see that at all. The Leutners declined to speak with Hale for the book, but she nonetheless portrayed Bella's trauma, her slow recovery, and her family's support through an upward arc into a more hopeful future with meticulous care. And a key thing that stood out in the interview for me was Hale describing her process of achieving both compassion and dispassion. She describes drafting the book three times, in part so that she could wear away her own need to find a villain. It would be a very different world if this process were available to the courts. But it is available to us every day as we consider the crimes and misdemeanors of individuals and the cultures that make them. Because we know that as time goes on, internet chaos and mental precarity will remain locked in feedback loops. The murders and riots precipitated when brain worms like QAnon intersect with immiserated populations will continue. In this world, the story of Morgan Anissa and Bella holds microcosmic and prophetic power, and Hale has served it up in a heart-shaped box for slow and lucid contemplation. Kathleen Hale, welcome to Conspirituality Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I wanted to start by seeing if we can share an old home moment because you grew up close to Waukesha, where the events of Slender Man unfold. I didn't grow up in Wisconsin exactly, but I was born again in Wisconsin uh, because I was in a new age cult there from 1996 to 1999. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it was in Wisconsin Dells, which you probably know. I... I had the the weirdest trip to Wisconsin Dells. Um, I used to go there growing up, obviously on vacation because it's an enormous water park, the the world's largest outdoor water park. Right. But I went there later when I was a writer because I wanted to write a story set there. And I went during the off season. And during the off season, it's like a couple thousand people live there. Right. And you have in the winter all of these like rides and giant panda statues covered in snow and it's the most eerie kind of winter landscape I've ever I'd ever seen and in those winters of the couple thousand people for a number of years about 500 of them belonged to a cult called Endeavor Academy and that's where I was holy shit 
And in fact, we our, our group provided a lot of the service workforce for the vacation economy. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so who knows? I, I might have uh, served you a milkshake somewhere or um, and, and I'm glad I didn't recruit you. Uh, it was a, it was a very oh, strange, strange history. Um, you know, in my pre-recorded lead-in to this interview, uh, I'm offering a really robust outline of what you've accomplished in this timely and very interesting book. So I'm not going to make you do the 101. And I want to plunge into its really rich themes because they're core to our podcast beat, especially as related to our coverage of violent incidents related to the uh, QAnon conspiracy theory. But I want to kind of stay in this personal history positionality zone for a bit, uh, or where we come from as writers and investigators, because part of what we do here on the pod is that, you know, with two of us ourselves being cult survivors and investigating a lot of cults in the age of COVID, you know, we have to sort out the personal from the professional and you know, sometimes see where we can't. So I just wanted to open by asking about uh, the resonance between Slenderman, uh, which is partly about, as the subtitle has it, online obsession, and the tangle that, for better or worse, you have been previously known for. Um, so Sachi Cool in, in BuzzFeed in 2019 called the story Kathleen Hale versus Goodreads. And it's a really complex story, and I don't want to litigate it or get into the weeds. But the thumbnail is that it revolves around your 2014 article in The Guardian, in which you regretfully discussed uh, stalking an anonymous reviewer on Goodreads, who you felt unfairly panned your first novel. And it got to the point of you finding out their identity and getting as far as their front door before pulling yourself back. And this essay attracted a lot of attention. Um, Anne Rice took note. John Mullaney commented on it. Neil Gaiman took notice. Um, and, and that confession and what some saw as, you know, unresolved details within it, it precipitated this wave of online opprobrium that got you booted from Goodreads, it pushed you off of social media, and it contributed to really high levels of stress, as you describe in some other materials. So I just want to acknowledge that like the publication of Slenderman is like a comeback event for you in some ways. Um, perhaps it's a change of channel, but I think it's also rooted in the same time period, the same a kind of personal gravitas. Because uh, Morgan Geyser stabs Bella Leutner in May of 2014, and you immediately start looking into it. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Guardian article comes out in October. And so, by my understanding of the timeline, you're in the initial stages of researching this story about online terror while going through a kind of online chaos. And in the press package, uh, you describe a subsequent hospitalization that enlightened you to the mental health care disaster that swallowed up Morgan and Anissa Ware, uh, your subjects. So I just want to start by asking, how did life events and the Slenderman story influence each other uh, for good or ill or both? I think probably subconsciously they were inextricably entwined 
subconsciously, I think that I was seeking out a story that was so very much not about me. People ask if I'm embarrassed by writing the article uh, that got me canceled, if I'm embarrassed by that piece. And what I would say is that I'm embarrassed by all the pieces that I wrote about myself online during a time when it was very difficult to get paid for writing internet pieces and the sort of way to market oneself as a woman, especially, was to join this sort of confessional essay craze where you just open up your entire personal life to the internet. And what happened after I was canceled and sort of went offline and checked myself in briefly to a psychiatric hospital. I was there for two weeks because I could not, I could not escape the uh, counter stalking that in that ensued as people wanted to punish me for admitting that I had uh, internet stalked my um, my Goodreads critic. It opened my eyes also to just the inequities in our mental health care system. I had extremely good health insurance at the time through the Writers Guild. And um, I also knew the intricacies of the law. And so I knew I wanted to stay. I wanted to stay in the hospital because I wanted to be safe. I wanted to stay there until I felt safe with myself again. And so um, after 72 hours, if you don't have health insurance, the price jumps to $2,000 a day for a public hospital in the United States, the one I was at. And I knew that because of my insurance that it wouldn't cost that every day I had to say, yes, I'm a danger to myself and others. Yes, I'm a danger to myself and others. And so by the end of um, two weeks, it cost me $150 total. But if you don't know those rules, if you don't know that you have to say those words, that secret code to get into the resort of mental health care that we have in this country. And if you don't have health insurance, um, and if you don't have specialized health insurance, because most health insurance plans in the U.S., they don't cover mental health care. Mental health care is considered like adjacent to, to medical you know, treatment by a lot of mental, uh, by a lot of health care pro- providers or a lot of um, health insurance providers, excuse me. And I just happen to be part of the Writers Guild and they take for granted that we as writers are going to have um, mental lapses. And so it's, it's really baked into our primary care. And I came out of there feeling extraordinarily lucky to have been in the situation that I was in, in terms of being able to pay for the care that I received. And I, um, I think it definitely, as I started to report on Morgan's case, it drew me toward the story in a different way because I saw her illness as an illness and I was beginning to understand how far we are as a culture from being able to acknowledge mental illnesses as illnesses. And when I started covering her case in earnest, which was in 2017, and I'd started talking to her mother, I was a new mom myself. And that gave my attachment to the story a completely different level. 
I have found just anecdotally that when people listen to me talk about this story or when they talk about this story online and they are parents, they tend to think, oh my God, what if, what if something like this happened to my child? As in, what if my child were stabbed? And of course I was horrified by um, Bella's attack, but I came to the story with a different perspective, which is what if something like this happened to my child? I.e. what if my child was sick and I didn't know it and they acted out of confusion and fear in a violent way and I lost them and I had to watch my government punish them and withhold treatment from them, withhold medication. And so I didn't understand for a little while that that was a unique perspective on the story. To me, it was so obvious. And what happened was then I, after I started talking to Angie, I pitched yet another piece to The Guardian, interestingly, and it was this piece. It was this book. It was a piece of this book. And they were all over it, given my access. But when they saw that the perspective on the story that I was taking was the quote-unquote villain's perspective, they didn't want to publish it because they were afraid of getting attacked on um, Twitter. And I think once I realized how controversial compassionate true crime storytelling would be, it, it drove me even closer to, to this, uh, this piece and to wanting to, to talk about this piece and tell it in a, in a real full, true way. Well, I thank you for your patience with that question. You know, uh, I'm asking because the reporting that you had to file for Slenderman is just so complex, so disturbing, so delicate. You know, it requires enormous clarity, good boundaries, you know, hypervigilant ethics. But it sounded like you were able to ground yourself in several ways in preparing to write this book and, and gaining trust with your sources. But I did want to ask on that note whether uh, the Geysers or other sources in Wisconsin at the time were aware of this online situation. And if so, did they care about it? They were absolutely aware. Um and, you know, like, as I was saying before, I thought that by telling this story, I would get a break from writing about myself. Right. Um, and I had vowed never to do it again. But of course, all of the pieces of my past, all of the writing about myself, everything I had been through was what was connecting me to the story. So it was, it was, it was, it could never have come from a non-personal place, even if the story was not about me. When I talked to Angie, part of what I think drew us together and instigated a sort of journalistic trust and reciprocity with us was that I understood a fraction of what she had been through being um, attacked online for being the mother of the quote-unquote Slenderman stabber. And so I had, I don't think a lot of other people had empathy for her because the idea is like, well, it's your kid. It's your fault. You deserve, you deserve. And, and also like, if you don't want to see this, don't read it. And so she was on top of dealing with losing with her daughter. She was dealing with a ton of hate mail and she was drawn to the comment sections of these articles about Morgan. And she was looking for some, someone to just some, one commenter to, to stand up for her. And 
uh, just like one kind voice in the crowd. And so she was in, in, engaged in this sort of masochistic, obsessive reading cycle. Uh, and I could, I could empathize with that, with that too. And so to my surprise, my cancellation, it didn't get in the way of, of trust between my sources and myself. It sounds like with Angie, it actually opened a door. Yeah, it did. The other question I have about your closeness to the story uh, has to do with your background in fiction. Uh, and I actually considered postponing this interview until I had read your young adult novels, but I also wanted to get this out in a timely manner uh, because, you know, it's it's launched and in the world now. But I was able to see that the 2014 book that started all of this, No One Can Have You, opens with the discovery of the body of a murdered teenage girl off the side of a rural road in Wisconsin. Now, now it takes 17 chapters in Slenderman for you to build to the point where a cyclist finds Peyton Leutner barely alive mm -hmm. off the side of a rural road in Wisconsin. So did you enter this story with some kind of sense of deja vu? And how did you switch modes from young adult murder mystery to investigating a real young adult attempted murder and its consequences? Well, I had to switch modes in one sense because I wasn't going to be allowed to write one young adult fiction anymore. Um, I, I wrote No One Else Can Have You in 2010 um, and uh, rewrote it over the course of several years. And um, I think that when I started writing Slender Man, I felt not so much a sense of deja vu as a sense of coming home. Like this is, this is the kind of writing that I want to be doing. This is the kind of writing that I've always wanted to be doing. Um, and I didn't know it. Um, and I had sort of bounced around between um, market trends. And when I started writing YA fiction, I mean, the kinds of fiction I was already writing lent, lent themselves to YA. I've, I had always liked writing from a kid's point of view in college, but that was also, you know, the, the, the writing trend at the time, everybody was writing YA in the 2010 uh, times. And then I went to confessional essays and then I sort of bounced into, into true crime and it just felt so, it felt so right. I had this like real sense of gratitude, um, that these people were opening their lives to me and it seemed to make my job so easy. Like these people just by living their lives have, have written the, the heart of this story for me. And, and all I have to do is to unfold it and, and find and put the details in order in emotional order. And it was a huge transition for me because having written fiction and then written about journalism that was largely centered around myself as a character. I was now not in the story and I could not exaggerate even a little bit as one does in fiction when, you know, I couldn't make anything up. I had to maintain credibility and I had to speak factually and still try to infuse the story with, with emotion without inserting myself into the story. You write 
in your author's note in the beginning that you were able to interview Morgan Geyser in person for 18 hours. And I think more by phone, is that right? Yeah. And you learned an immense amount about her internal world, but you weren't able to interview Anissa Ware. And you explain in that note that you reconstructed her internal processes from public records and transcripts and and whatnot. Reading the book, however, it feels like you had equal access to them both. So unless that transparency note was there, the reader wouldn't know that you had access to one and not the other. And so I, I wanted to to ask you about, you know, being a fiction writer, entering into this new mode and carrying the burden of rich imaginative powers. Um, you know, it, it sounds like you really did have to give yourself new guardrail, guardrails for this process while reconstructing her experience. Was that difficult? Yes, it was very difficult. The reason that it took me five years to write is not because I was like, walking around every day for five years interviewing people and then inputting it into the book as I went. It's because I rewrote the book three times and each draft was very different and they were all working toward a compassionate, dispassionate <laughs> account, full account of the, of the crime. So earlier drafts were a bit more like experimental in terms of the structure, like, you know, jumping around in time. And they also sort of were reaching around for somebody to blame in the story for, for what it, for what had happened, uh, post arrest, not, not for the crimeness. Uh, but, and what I realized as I, as I drafted these things that were not working is that there was, no villain in this story. And I needed to stop looking for one in terms of what happened after Morgan's arrest. Um, and then the other thing is that it needed to be told in consecutive order because the story itself was so unbelievable that it needed to be structured in a simple, in a simple way. But the most fun part for me, I mean, for lack of a better word, it's not a, it's not a very happy, sunny, fun story, but was taking these um, these details that I had foraged from these interviews with Morgan and her family and also from the immense amount of court documents that I went through and putting them into a timeline so that they helped amplify uh, and, and texturize the story that I, I knew was already there. Now, to that point, you had a lot of contact with Morgan you weren't able to interview Anissa. I guess the the test of how you got those internal motivations and and thoughts right is is hearing feedback from them about about how the book is. Do you know whether either of them have read it? I don't know about Anissa because I'm not in touch with her, unfortunately. I uh, Morgan does not want to read the book and I don't want her to read the book. And that's just because for Morgan, she, she was in a state of psychosis leading up to the stabbing and then remained in an escalating state of psychosis for 19 months, even though she had post arrest, uh, a schizophrenia diagnosis. And I mean, it's hard. I think it's hard for anyone without who doesn't have schizophrenia to understand what psychosis feels like, but it's very bad for your brain. You can imagine that if I'm in this room right now, 
surrounded by hallucinations who are talking to me. I'm not going to have a lot of self-awareness. Also, there's a lot of negative symptoms around schizophrenia that just basically take away your emotions. So all there's room for is this like fire of voices and faces. And so when she was finally administered antipsychotics, she, it was like waking up from a dream and she finally understood what she had done and that she had done it for no reason. And she missed Bella terribly. And her, her, in her mind, it was like they had just been friends, you know, even though it was like more than a year ago or whatever she didn't remember very much from sixth grade and that's when she slid into her first suicidal depression and so at this point it's like she feels so much remorse and hates herself so much for what she did that revisiting the crime by reading my book I think would be dangerous for her physical safety because she has a tendency toward suicidal depression and suicidal ideation. And so I would never want her to read this book because the first chunk of it is a minute by minute retelling of, of the crime, uh, which could be extremely uh, dangerous to her, to her psyche. And I, and I'm not sure that it would be great for Anissa or for Peyton uh, to to read to read that either, even though they all come across as strong, resilient young women who have their individual character arcs within the book, and who and each of them grows in incredible ways uh, through this experience and in spite of it. Um, but I don't think I would pick it. I don't think I would put it on their reading list necessarily. You were very deliberate about finishing their arcs. Uh, all of them really on an upward plane, uh, on a plane towards some kind of empowerment given the limitations of their situations. Um, But it really strikes me as like an incredible, um, I I don't know if risk is the right word, but like um, it's, it's an amazing choice for a writer to make to be able to recount a story like this and know that the subjects probably shouldn't read it. And, and my question specifically around Morgan, uh, with regard to how you sort this out for yourself is that, you know, when someone, I mean, she's, she's currently medicated for, uh, schizophrenic psychosis and doing well on it. Uh, and, she has spoken with you about uh, her memories, but she's done it from what is essentially prison. And so I guess my question is the extent to which she can approve in an informed way mm-hmm. with regard to how these really intimate struggles are going to be in print for posterity. Like if this is a book that she probably doesn't want to read, um, how is she, or did you, were you able to have an open conversation with her about its value in the world nonetheless? Yeah. So I didn't need to, I didn't need to like pitch the book to Morgan. I was introduced to Morgan by her mom who knew what I was doing and had read a 
portion of it in its original iteration as an article. And she sort of, and Angie saw that my perspective on the case was different. And um, Morgan start, began to call me from the locked psychiatric ward where she still lives. And so we were talking on the phone and she knew that I was writing a book about it. And we mostly talked about her writing because she's a prolific writer. And But when we started meeting in person, I was always very aware of the fact that she was 15 turning 16 years old um, and has schizophrenia. And I wanted to be very uh, sure and very certain that she understood what, what was going on, even though, you know, she was lucid um, and very, very smart and understood a lot of things. So I would ask her, you know that I'm writing a book about you, right? And she, she did, she always understood. So I was, I was reassured that, that she knew what was happening. And, um, I didn't feel as though I was exploiting her. She told me, I was, you know, I said, you understand that I'm writing a book about you. And she said, yeah, if anyone was going to do it, I would want it to be you. So she did have an understanding of, of the fact that that's what I was doing. And we've talked about it since. And um, her not wanting to read the book is not a product of her being surprised that it's happening. Her not wanting to read the book is is rooted in her own uh, self-awareness around her uh, triggers and her mental health issues. And I really respect that, that she has learned to know herself in that way and understands what she can handle and what she cannot. So I wanted to return to what you said about rewriting the book three times. And you described each pass as an attempt to further humanize all of the subjects, but also to erode the specter of the villain, which would be a staple archetype in something like a young adult novel. Um, and that brings me to Slenderman himself. Uh, who is he and is he the villain? So Slenderman is a character who emerged from a 2009 Photoshop contest online. And um, people were trying to make scary pictures. And he was featured in uh, the two winning photos. Uh, they both pictured... Um, children playing in the foreground and then a, a, a lanky figure watching them from afar. Um, and they were really, really good Photoshop. <laughs> it was a really good Photoshop job and the photos uh, are, are very cool um, and worth looking at. And what ended up happening is as the uh, internet developed and, and you began to see uh, little enclaves uh, for creative writing, for fan fiction, for horror, horror message boards. People began getting together um, on a site called creepypasta.com, among other places. It's not the only place like this. And writing fan fiction about these crowdsourced characters. Um, and Slenderman began to show up in these stories because people really liked these photos of him and they began making their own photos and writing their own urban legends about him. And so the discourse around him grew, but not to the extent that you would imagine when reading the articles about this stabbing. He was actually a bit of a fringe character on this site. And um, he was also very much a PG, PG-13 kind of character, as are 
most of the characters on Creepypasta. The stories themselves are very tame and many of them are clearly written by children. Um, But of course, after the crime occurred, Creepypasta was painted as sort of like a satanic cult. Um, And and Slenderman himself was elevated uh, to this, um, you know, a guru-like figure, uh, when in reality he was, I mean, nothing, nothing grander than the star of, uh, old fashioned urban legends that, uh, you or I might've told around a campfire instead of online. That's extraordinary to think about that, um, in order to kind of look for a villain, this relatively benign, but, sort of disturbing figure, imaginative figure has to become larger than what he was. Um, But I wanted to ask about his layered meanings as well that might be sort of beyond the, the, I don't know, like the, the vocab level of the readers of Creepypasta, but I'm wondering if these kind of influences are present. Uh, because as soon as Morgan and Anissa enter the Wisconsin justice system, where they are absurdly prosecuted as adults, it's almost as if they're entering something that children might be aware of as being part of the outside world, that perhaps there are brick and mortar versions of these online labyrinths that they are creating for themselves. So did you start to see a parallel between the bizarro world of creepypasta uh, and the Kafkaesque world of the courts? I did in the sense that the laws that were positioned to come crashing down on Morgan and Anissa were based around and inspired by uh, this super predator theory in the 90s. And it has turned out that the that the so-called super predator is as fictional um, as Slender Man doesn't exist. And so these laws themselves are based on a fake theory that was long ago debunked. And that part of it was very surreal and felt very like through the looking glass that, you know, we were sitting around and watching watching these girls get prosecuted as adults in a system that had been built upon theories, science that was as fake as anything on creepypasta. And as far as that world that they were creating or engaging with, there are other sort of intuitions that I think might come forward through a character like Slenderman. Uh, you point out, I think, in the book that there are aesthetic relationships between him and Agent Smith um, in The Matrix, or I think you reference Men in Black as well. And so it seems that uh, Slenderman also becomes an archetype for maybe the police state or even surveillance capitalism, uh, something or somebody who's always watching, always reaching into private spaces with, with many arms and tentacles. Is that fair? 
Yeah, I think that Slenderman represents a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And I could definitely see that being one interpretation. I think it's really smart. Um, I think the, 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 the more ancient uh, parallel is that he's really just the newest sort of iteration of the Pied Piper of of Hamlin, both in terms of the mythology that's been built around him online and also in terms of how Morgan and Anissa saw him or wanted to see him. One of the things that makes this book such a compelling read is that it normalizes, and I would say almost naturalizes, Morgan's clinical schizophrenia. Uh, And in an interview uh, that's included in the press kit, you say that uh, in the text, quote, I treat her hallucinations as living, breathing people because that's what they are to her. Uh, And perhaps in seeing things from her perspective, people will understand that this crime was committed by a person and not a monster. And that brings me to the moment of the stabbing itself that you describe, because you report that at least in that moment and over the prior day uh, leading up to the attack in the forest, it's not actually Morgan's hallucinations that are mainly pushing her over the edge and into physical violence. Rather, it's this kind of long, entangled planning process that was co-created with Anissa, uh, and that Morgan, in her social isolation, is depending on Anissa for a kind of self-worth and validation. So, in some ways, Slenderman hovers in the background as an hallucination for Morgan, but without Anissa giving her explicit and urgent encouragement at the scene of the crime, it feels like it might not have happened. Do you think that that's fair? I think it's absolutely fair to say that on the day of the crime and leading up to the crime, the voice that was encouraging Morgan to do this was not a voice in her head and it was not a visual hallucination. It was Anissa's voice. Um, Morgan had and still has a debilitating disability. And before Anissa came along, Bella had basically become Morgan's babysitter and was doing a very caring job of keeping her out of trouble at school and helping her fly under the radar. And she also, uh, you can imagine, you know, at the age of 9, 10, 11, it's a very loving gesture to pretend to hear and see someone else's imaginary friends. And she she did that for Morgan as well. She pretended to see and hear Morgan's hallucinations. Of course, he didn't know that that's what they were. And when Anissa came along, she really wanted to take over, I think, Morgan's, uh, she wanted to take over the role of Morgan's caretaker. There were um, a number of times that they were out and about around their neighborhood, um, one in particular, where she really made excuses for Morgan's behavior, pretending to be her sister. Don't worry about her. I've got her because Morgan was behaving in a bizarre way because Morgan was very confused and having trouble keeping things together. And so leading up to the crime and on the day of the crime, Anissa was sort of Morgan's translator for, for you know, whatever reason they had they had concocted around uh, needing to stab Bella and uh, Morgan said multiple times during her interrogation that Anissa had made it seem necessary. And so she uh, sort of distilled all the things that they had been finding and talking about online and helped uh, Morgan make sense of them. And unfortunately, in the end, she was encouraging her to do something that was going to change all three girls' lives forever for the, for the worse. 
So what we have then is a court system that, in a very ableist way, is attributing Morgan's violence to her psychosis, when even if she does suffer from psychotic episodes, there's no prior evidence that that has led to violence. And and that what is closer to the truth is that there's a kind of internet-driven social contagion. Is that fair, do you think? I think that the when we're talking about Morgan's schizophrenia in the context of Slenderman, one of the most important things to remember is that Slenderman was not Morgan's hallucination. He reminded her of something she had seen in the mirror when she was five years old, something that was very scary. But other than that, her hallucinations were very, very positive presences in her life, which is something that you don't really hear about when people discuss schizophrenia. When you discuss schizophrenia, you often hear or think about uh, demons in people's heads, devils standing behind them, God talking in their ear, telling them to do terrible things. But for Morgan, her hallucinations were kind, encouraging, wanted her to be a good person. That was really nice of you, Morgan. They would say, you're such a good friend, Morgan, you know, when she did something nice. Um, And it just happened that as she was sort of devolving into uh, her first um, experience with full-blown psychosis, um, she was introduced to Slenderman by Anissa and she confided in Anissa that Slenderman reminded her of this figure she'd seen in the mirror. And Anissa unfortunately helped Morgan to make sense of that in a way that was very destructive. But yes, the ableist discourse in the courtroom cannot be overstated in this case. Morgan petitions for release from hospital have been doomed because despite the fact that her her doctors have all testified um, that she should be out of there doesn't matter it's up to the judge on her case the elected judge and the argument from the prosecution is this circular argument that you cannot you can't fight with it which is that she will always have schizophrenia. That is a fact. And their argument is that because she will have always have schizophrenia, she will always be dangerous. And so then you get into this territory where you need to pick apart uh, that aspect of it, which is in- incredibly hard in a society that that can barely talk about mental illness at all. And in terms of schizophrenia, they, it, schizophrenia is a mental illness that is really demonized. I don't think I came across it in the book, but I'm wondering if the defense ever challenged the prosecution to make a causal case that connected psychosis to the attack, because that the circular argument is built on that flaw, isn't it? It is. It's 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 really surreal to to watch these arguments unfold because on one hand the prosecution is basically arguing that mental illness doesn't exist or shouldn't be accounted for in this case. Right. Right. <laughs> and at the same time, they're using mental, they're using the fact of Morgan's mental illness as reason to keep her locked up. So it, it just spins and spins and spins. Yeah. You know, that really drives home the paradox uh, of uh, at first arguing against the ruling of not guilty by reason of insanity, but then pointing out that, of course, well, 
you know, the subject is insane and so they can't be trusted. That's kind of incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when it served their purposes, they would acknowledge that she had schizophrenia, but only in order to argue that she should be locked up for the rest of her life. To your point about finding villains, which is what the sort of legal framework seems to be designed to do, um, there don't seem to be any tools for investigating or prosecuting or just sort of understanding this very complex set of social circumstances. Uh, It seems at best the legal system will express you know, a limited, as you're saying, empathy for the person that it pathologizes, uh, but that the the primary task is to locate blame in one single place, as if, you know, there's a single crime, it must have a single cause. So is that part of what you were trying to unpack? Yeah, I was trying to unpack this idea that I found that so many of us take for granted in the United States, which is that when someone commits a heinous, unforgivable crime, they should be punished forever, every single day, in every single way, until they die. Even outside of this case, you see that all the time. For instance, felons in our country, when they have served their time, they cannot do anything to make money. They can't work it affects everything. And so the recidivism rate is is very high because in order to make money, many former inmates commit new crimes and then they go back. So that's one thing. You're just not allowed to move on. There's no idea. There's We've completely tossed out the idea of rehabilitation. The prison system is completely built around punishment. There are, the prisons are overcrowded. There are number one mental health, public mental health care resource. And in Morgan's case, you know, you saw that punishment aspect, that emphasis on this person must suffer and suffer and suffer played out in real time. First with the, uh, with the adult prosecution, uh, which is, you know, we, we prosecute children as adults in this country and that that shouldn't happen at all. Um, but we just sort of take for granted that it does. And then with the withholding of medication, that that everyone seemed just sort of resigned to the fact that Morgan would remain in psychosis until if, if she were found not guilty by reason of insanity, maybe then she would receive emergency medical treatment. And there just was no impetus behind getting her basic human care And I felt like that linked up with our country's need to see criminals criminalized um, in order to feel like justice had been served. It's a nation obsessed with Christianity and completely bereft of forgiveness. Yeah, ironically, for such a Christian nation, we, we do not forgive people's trespasses. One other aspect of the way in which you normalize Morgan's experience. And I think this feels increasingly familiar uh, in a world made more fragmented and perhaps schizophrenic uh, by social media and the conspiracy theories that it drives is that, you know, with Slenderman, 
We also have uh, a parallel in, let's say, Q of QAnon. Different genre, different age group, different target demographic. They have different agendas, but they operate in similar ways in the sense that they are online avatars with deep archetypal power that can drive in real life action. So I'm wondering if you were also sort of chewing on that, because this book seems to have a kind of predictive power now. I don't know enough about QAnon to speculate about the connections between this case and that, but I definitely, I felt the power of the internet in every sense of this case, but surprisingly, uh, Slenderman's power seemed very minor and weak compared to the power of commenters in in certain sections of coverage of this case, like Anissa's live trial, um, comments under articles about the adult prosecution and just people saying that that wasn't enough, that what they wanted for these girls was the death penalty. And what I found that I was looking at in those comment sections were voters. These are voters in, um, in Judge Boren's electorate. And um, these are the voices of the people who, who maintain his authority. um, And, they, A, do not seem to know that the death penalty has been outlawed for oh my, such a long time in Wisconsin, um, but they want these girls to die. They want them to, it's not enough that, that Morgan and Nisa were facing 100 years in adult prison. Um, people online, online wanted them to die. And so I, I sort of was very, very aware at all times of like, the the fact that the, the the power that the internet holds um and what these people were communicating and to whom and it's not just it's not just a separate reality the internet is not a separate reality like we live in multiple realities now seamlessly and um we can't dismiss the stuff that we see uh the discourse we see unfolding online and i think we need to switch our attention from demonizing like screen time for children you know, and, and, and really start to think about like what, what the opinions are that are circulating and what that means for our our communities. It's really salient in my own life because I am in that Gen X position of being fairly stressed on a daily basis about the difference between, uh, are my children engaging with screens or are they engaging with content? (laughs) Uh, and yeah, I'm starting to get a little bit uh, more relaxed or at least integrated about that. Demonizing the technology itself uh, is a real bypass Mm -hmm. uh, with regard to why the technology exists and what needs it's actually fulfilling. Mm -hmm. And speaking of that, you know, you do this great job of turning a spotlight onto you know, these internet spaces that these girls are using. And that's really important, I think, because recently there's been so much attention paid to young men on Reddit, on the Chan boards. Uh, Dale Baran was a recent guest of ours, and his book has been a real guidepost for us. Um, it's called uh, It Came From Something Awful, uh, and it's about how you know, Chan culture and various, um, you know, message board environments created the memosphere that actually propelled the, the 
you know, kind of deconstruction of democracy over the last eight years or so. But it seems that if girls like Morgan and Anissa, and of course now we're talking eight years ago, 10 years ago, if they want to carve out their own online spaces apart from misogyny, let's say, they're still going to face their own challenges. And so I'm wondering what your read is on how girls who are now their age are finding their own spaces online. Gosh, you know, it's such a good question. I, I'm not really sure just because it's not it's not my field of expertise, but there is a great there's a great book about uh, girls and the internet by Nancy Jo Sells called American Girls. And uh, it just talks about how difficult it is to to be a digital native and be growing up with such interconnectedness. And then especially like, you know, uh, girls and boys and trading pictures and all of that stuff. Um, but for Morgan and Anissa, the, the internet was really like their tin can telephone. And I think something that it drove home for me is that the relationships that we have that exist online don't always translate well into real life interactions. Morgan and Anissa were incredibly close via email. They were they drew closeness with each other from these internet horror stories. Um, but uh, in the flesh, they they were less compatible, and um, and so I, I thought a lot about them sitting in their respective condo units across the same condo complex. And just communicating at night via email and writing about these stories and how it assuaged their loneliness, but was the building block to a friendship that maybe should never have happened. It's somewhat nostalgic, but I distrust that response to think about how uh, a relationship formed through this tin can network seems to be different from, you know, I can feel this kind of like conservative response, which is that, uh, oh, you know, well, back in the 70s, we played outside. And that's how we, you know, that's the only way we would have known each other. And so we would have known that, you know, a certain you know, I don't know that that there wouldn't have been it's like the video game problem of um you know, does does violence on screens translate into violence in real life? Mm -hmm. I can feel this sense that, you know, there will be some people older than me or my age who will say, uh, you know, this wouldn't have happened back then because mm. we wouldn't, we, because, because those girls would have been playing or knowing each other in a reality based environment, you mm -hmm. know, in which physical actions had consequences and in which, you know, the, the fantasy of actually killing somebody couldn't kind of get unleashed from this virtual environment into the real world so so easily mm -hmm. but um i don't know i don't know if that's i don't know if there's any merit to that at all i think it's actually patently false um the you know blaming new media in this case blaming screens would allow a parent like you or i to be like oh okay now we can control we can make sure this doesn't happen to our kids because we'll limit screen time we'll this and that we'll, we'll demonize it in our conversations 
But, you know, you look all the way back to 1924 with the Leopold and Loeb case in Chicago, which was another case of child-on-child violence. And that was blamed on detective novels. So there's always going to be some new fangled form of entertainment that confuses older generations and makes them defensive about their, their lack of knowledge on the subject and is easily blamed and easily made into a scheme to a scapegoat when horrifying things happen. Um, and that's just, we have such a rich history of blaming new media for child-on-child violence. Columbine's another example. Marilyn Manson, video games, as you said. Um, and in fact, like, of course, like Slender Man in this case was not the cause. He was a symptom of something else that was going on. And, and if the girls had not had access to him, I think that they would have invented another, um, you know, m- magical framework uh, through which to channel their fear and confusion and, and lead them down the wrong, it would have led themselves down the wrong path one way or another. So has this case provoked any legislative interest in amending the laws that defined it, uh, like such as whether 12-year-olds are going to be scrutinized as adults? Yeah, oh my gosh. In Wisconsin, children as young as 10 are uh, prosecuted in adult court in cases of violent crime, 10 years old. And you and I have kids and we know how young that is. We know how young 12 is. We know how young 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22 is. And the brain science is like very clear. And I know that science, unfortunately, has become such a politicized word, but it, 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 I, so I won't even get into it because it's, it's, it's like, who am I, who am I convincing? But the, so the legislature that prosecutes children as adults in places like Wisconsin was set up in the 1990s because of John DeLulio Jr.'s theory about super predators, which was a racially coded word for young people growing up in quote unquote urban areas who were raised in quote unquote moral poverty and were becoming, uh, quote unquote, kitty criminals or wolf packs. He referred to them as animals. And he was a Christian fundamentalist and he worked, he was a professor, a sociology professor at Princeton at the time. And he came out with this theory and right, right away, all these laws were built to prosecute children more harshly because it was decided that they shouldn't be treated like children because they weren't children. They were monsters. They were super predators. And this got support from Democrats and Republicans. Uh, Hillary Clinton supported it. It's now associated with Republicans because they are the ones who will not change these laws. But Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden, like it was, it was a bipartisan issue. Everyone was really excited to come down hard on kids. And just a few years after this legislation was passed across the nation, John DeLulio Jr. came out and was like, I made it all up. Sorry. Actually, he never said sorry, but, um, and he, nothing happened to him. He went on to work for the Bush White House and the laws set up in service in his theory persist to this day. And it has become almost impossible to dismantle them because tough on crime laws are so, so politicized and so wrapped up in the GOP mission. And so I would be incredibly surprised if this book moved the dial at all, especially somewhere like Wisconsin. Uh, I did a ton of research on juvenile justice laws and interviewed a ton of juvenile justice advocates. And they all agreed that although they have had a lot of success raising the minimum age in other states in the United States, Wisconsin, for some reason, is a tough spot and 
they have just been unable to move the dial even a little bit, even a little bit there. I mean, you would think that right now we would possibly be able to come together uh, across party lines to agree that 10-year-olds should not be sent to adult prison. But even that is, it's just a non-starter and we can't even have the conversation. It's taken me till this moment to think about uh, our nine-year-old becoming 10 in October and then suddenly being adult criminally responsible for something mm-hmm. ill-considered or indoctrinated that he that he did. Um, yeah, it's unimaginable, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. However, maybe we can imagine a much better world uh, in which there's room for, you know, mature and empathetic legal response to something like this. Can you walk me through what would ideally have happened following the arrest of Morgan and Anissa? Yeah, definitely. So in an ideal world, um, in a, in a different country, (laughs) you know, in, in a country, in a country that we might consider one of our peers, for instance, um, after Morgan and Anissa committed this awful crime, what would have happened was instead of being shepherded into separate interrogation rooms and interrogated without an, uh, a parent or a, uh, an advocate of any kind present, they would have re- immediately have a responsible adult assigned to them to sit with them. And they would not, uh, per- and they would not be interviewed by themselves as children. That would be step one. And then they would never have been charged in, uh, in adult court. They would, their case they would have gone to a juvenile detention center, which they did, but because they were considered adults in Wisconsin, um, they didn't receive the juvenile resources that were available to them at the juvenile detention center. So in an ideal world, they would have had a responsible adult or a, a, a legal advocate in their interview, and then they would have gone to the juvenile detention center where they would have been assigned a social worker, and that social worker would have made sure that they were provided with all of the medical, um, including psychiatric uh, care that they needed, and also that they had the, the resources, the rehabilitative resources and the therapeutic resources that, that they desperately needed. And then they would have progressed into the juvenile justice system where they could, where they would have been quote unquote sentenced to, to a period of time in a juvenile prison, but they would have been released when they reached you know, the age of 17 or 18, juvenile justice advocates all agree that it should be 18, just given, given the other laws that we have in the country around adulthood and what that looks like. And they would have gotten out, but they would have been provided with uh, resources and oversight until the age of 25, um, potentially. And so that would have allowed them to to serve out their their time in a place that was geared toward children and after leaving 
that place, they would have had resources provided to them that would help integrate them back into the community. Um, and they would have received medical care and they would have received therapy and they would have had help. And ostensibly, uh, to be released at 18, they would have also been able to complete high school. Yes. Uh, within. And of course, all of that is contingent on, you know, uh, consistent monitoring. And I imagine that yes. if their behaviors are stable, then that's good. If their behaviors decline or if there are things that are worrying or if the psychiatrists report, well, you know, I'm concerned about this or that, then that would be entered into a court record because there would be a series of hearings about, you know, okay, are they ready for release? Are they not? Um, are we still happy with all of this? It's not like the option that Judge Bowren did not take is somehow unmonitored or or volatile or something like that? Absolutely not. I mean, if anything, it, it's the more individuated the care is, the more oversight there is. Like kids like this just get lost in prison. Um, and I'm so glad that you brought up education because, you know, I, I in a juvenile justice system, they do receive, they go to school. That is, they, they go to school and without taking into consideration whether that schooling is any good, there is school and that is mandatory because they are children. Right. And Morgan stopped receiving an education at the age of 15. Her quote unquote schooling at Winnebago consisted of maybe if, if the teacher showed up at all, 90 minutes per week and she was not educated she was given an ipad with games with educational games and so she her education i mean really her education stopped at the age of 12 because she was in psychosis and i just i can't imagine that she learned anything during that time in fact she lost the ability to read and do basic math there was huge cognitive decline centered around the psychosis itself and so that's what we do to kids who um that's what we do to kids who are shepherded into the adult justice system is we take away their education. And then when and if they do get out of prison, they have no education. They're not only a felon, but they have no education. Whereas if they go into the juvenile system, they receive a high school education. And when they get out, their record is wiped so that they can actually go and get a job at Home Depot, at, at wherever, you know, they, they can go out into the world and begin to make some money and start over. And for adult felons, there is no starting over. So we're basically sentencing children to the, to the same terrible, terrible life that we sentence our, our adult um, inmates. You know, I know that you went through thousands of pages of court transcripts. I don't know if this made it into the book because I can't recall it, but did Morgan's defense argue for the necessity for her to continue to receive education as well as proper medical care? Yeah, they did. And Judge Boren's response was like, well, somebody should do uh, uh, some, somebody teach her something. Somebody, yeah, she should have an education. She should have medical care. He never stopped to consider it. I don't even know. It seemed like he didn't even understand the laws that he was working within right. because at every turn he upheld her adult status, but he also in, in during the moments that her defense team would bring up her lack of education um, in this system or the fact that she was still unmedicated, he would sort of bristle and be like, well, somebody should take care of that. Not realizing that because of her adult status, which he has had upheld, she didn't have access to, to those 
uh, interventions. On some level, he's unaware of the cruelty of his domain. Yeah, totally. Nonetheless, without the education uh, and its opportunities, um, you report that Morgan has been writing a lot. Yeah. Uh, that she's she's shared that with you. Are you able to say anything about that, or is that private? I mean, no, I can talk about it. Uh, um, she's at you know she gave me permission to use her writing and things in the book. Um, Morgan is an, is an artist. Um, she has an artist's spirit and she cannot stop making things. She she cannot stop. Um, she has written like five or six novels. She writes short stories. Her work is fascinating. It's something that's interesting about Morgan's writing is that all of her protagonists are boys and they're all in some kind of dystopian reality. And, um, often they are in a testing facility, wow. a sort of medical environment. Yeah. Wow. And they often have fathers who pass down to them some kind of unwanted burden. Right. Um, and so it's, it's very easy to read into that. Right. And to say Morgan inherited her schizophrenia from her father. And now as a result, she's in this arcane, uh, facility. And so she does explore, she explores her personal reality through fiction, but she had told me that the reason that her protagonists are all boys is because she, she needs that separation. If it, if it were a girl, it, it's just too close to the, to the bone. It cuts too close. And so uh, it's interesting that to me that all of her um, protagonists are boys. Does she have aspirations for other people to read her books? I think that Morgan's aspirations are pretty limited given everything that's happened to her. What she has learned is that nothing good will ever, will ever happen. And so I think she keeps her hopes and dreams pretty low. But yeah, she writes young adult fiction. She writes a lot of it. And her friend in the hospital, Katie, is always telling her, which I think is very sweet and tender, that her her books are going to be bestsellers and, you know, she's everyone's going to love them. Hey, everybody. You know, sometimes the ends of interviews are a little bit funny. Kathleen really found the perfect place to land on this topic of Morgan's own writing and imagination, but I didn't hear it clearly enough in the moment, so I breezed over that into the next question, but the question wasn't that important. And then I said so out loud, but then I forgot to close out because we were suddenly chatting about Wisconsin and young adult fiction and I pressed stop. And anyway, I don't have a proper goodbye here, so I'll do it now. Thanks, Kathleen, for your time. Thanks for a brilliant book. I hope it goes far. And listeners, thank you for your attention and your feedback, which is always welcome. Thank you.